That isn't just the sound of the 2016 Mercedes-Benz C-Class high-strength steel and aluminum frame being formed. It's the sound of conviction. Conviction that created a lighter, quicker, and more efficient C-Class, whose beautiful form commands attention, while its more powerful, fuel-efficient engine demands to be driven. This is what conviction sounds like. Now, discover what it feels like in a 2016 Mercedes-Benz C-Class. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome into The Warehouse, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles and Major League Baseball. The Warehouse is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. Hello, Bob. Hello. Okay, I, I can hear you, but I couldn't. You, you weren't responding. I don't know what's going on here. I don't either. Uh, are this, we... this interface is, is really difficult to work with. So it's, it seemed to work um, pretty I added, easy on our test, but it's yeah, it's weird today. Anyway, uh, should we just start from the top and just uh, scratch whatever's gone so far? I guess, yeah, I guess so. I guess, uh, I guess you are you at the controls here as far as? Yep, I've got that. I clicked on my information to add me. I don't know why I had to be added to the call, but anyway. All right, let's, let's just dive right in, okay? Okay, let's do it. All right, we're here for the first full official episode of The Warehouse. Brandon Warren here hosting. I am joined as always, or as always will be, by my co-host, Bob Harkins. Bob, how are we doing today? We're doing all right, Brandon. A little under the weather, but hey, that's all right. We'll power through this. Excited. Yeah, a little bit of technical difficulties, too, as we're trying to get used to this interface. But we're very glad that you've decided to join us. We are going to, of course, break down your Baltimore Orioles. We've got a review of the last couple nights against Toronto and looking ahead to tonight's, the rubber game of a three-game series. Got a Three-game series coming up with the Royals over the weekend, the American League Central prohibitive favorite and the defending world champions. We'll take a look at Matt Wieters catching. We'll take a look at Manny Machado and the potential to sign him to a long-term extension. There's also a bit of Jonathan Scope talk on tap for you as far as how he compares to the rest of the American League second baseman. We'll also talk a little bit Peter, uh, about Peter Gammons, who also penned an article about a five-year trend with the, the Orioles. And before we let you all go, we'll take a look at how everything stands across the American League East, what you like, what you don't like, and how we think this might play out. Obviously, it's very early, but we can still take a look at how things have played out so far and if we think things will change. So with that said, Bobby, ready to get going? Let's do it. All right, so... We are coming off a walk-off win for the Baltimore Orioles last night in 10 innings. 
the Orioles got to rookie Joe Biagini, and it was actually kind of an innocent enough bottom of the 10th inning at Orioles Park at Camden Yards. Jonathan Scope grounded out. Pedro Alvarez struck out, but then Caleb Joseph doubled. Joey Rickard had an infield single. Manny Machado walked with Rickard picking up second base on defensive indifference. And Adam Jones was at the plate when Biagini uncorked a wild pitch. Joseph scampered home for an unearned run, and the game was over. And so that has the Orioles at this point up to 9-4, and four, two and a half games out in front of the American League East. In fact, the two teams beneath them are both at 500, 7 and 7 for the Boston Red Sox, 8 and 8 for the Toronto Blue Jays. But you know what? A little bit of excitement from these Orioles with a walk-off win. I think that's good for them to have after going 1 and 4 following a 7 and 0 start. Bob, what have you seen from these Orioles after, you know, a blistering start and then kind of a rough patch here in the last 4 or 5 days? Yeah, I I I think well, first of all, let's we got to point out that it was a walk-off pass ball. The the first yeah, in Orioles, happen every day. The first in Orioles history, if you could believe that. Well, you know, I don't know how how far back they've been charting walk-off pass balls, but <laughs> but uh, but what I read was it was the first in Orioles history. So we'll go with that. Why not? Um, which to me just shows, you know, they always say you go to a baseball game, you're going to see something different every time, and I don't, that's a perfect example of that. It's just a, a crazy, wonderful game. Um, but yeah, I think uh, after that little rough patch, a nice, a nice little outing yesterday, and even, even Tuesday's game, which they lost to the Blue Jays, they made a nice comeback at the end. They came up a little bit short. Um, there were some good things to see in that. And it, in fact, I mean, I know a lot of people are high on the the Red Sox in the AL East this year. But I kind of like the Blue Jays coming in with that offense, with um, you know a decent pitching staff, and I, I also expect some big things out of Aaron Sanchez with them for them this year. I think you know one narrow loss and then one gut, gutsy victory. I think that's a good showing in the two games so far against a, a team that I like, you know, to be the favorite in that division. Um, yeah, a couple couple four or three games on each side and you know good competitive uh series so far no no shame in losing to Marcus Stroman in the opener if you ask me oh absolutely and what one thing I noticed you know that was the first really good look I got at Mike Wright personally and mm-hmm. you know he he you know he he tends to nibble a little bit he you know he threw a lot of pitches but I really like the movement on all his pitches. He did work on the edges nicely. And the big hit that kind of sunk him was that uh, Troy Tulowitzki had a two run single, which was kind of unlucky in a way the ball had nice movement in on his hands. Tulo just did a nice bit of hitting on it. And, uh, and Rickard actually kind of did not, did not get the best jump on that ball. If he gets a, uh, a better jump on it, he might actually catch it. Uh, so I think given that, given that the fact that, Wright looks pretty good, um, and the fact that they did come back and make a game out of it at the end, I, I, I really like what I'm seeing so far in that series. Now, tonight, coming up here, uh, again, the rubber game of that series, they'll play at 7.05 Eastern. 
Marco Estrada is opposing Chris Tillman. As far as expectations, uh, you know, what, what are you expecting to get out of each of these guys? I think, you know, you got a couple of veteran righties. People pretty much know what to get out of them. Estrada, when he's at his worst, will give up a lot of home runs, which makes him a pretty tough matchup. Uh, it's a tough matchup for him against how this Orioles team is currently constructed. Uh, Tillman, obviously, so far this season has been probably – he's been up and down, but he's been one of the better options in the rotation for the Orioles. That's not exactly saying a whole lot. Uh, what are your expectations for, for this matchup tonight? <laughs> probably, it, you know, a wide range of what you just said. You know, you could see – you could see, you know, you could see the Tillman that that did had a good outing against uh, the Rays. You could see the Tillman that that got roughed up by the Rangers, um, and that's kind of, to me, that's kind of the big issue with with him in particular, with the Orioles' rotation in general, is that there there just hasn't been the consistency there. What do you What do you think? I think. You know, it's, it's again, it's, it's a good veteran matchup. It's the kind of game where if if it ends four three like the first two games have before in the series, it wouldn't surprise me at all. It, it is a good matchup for the Orioles, like I noted, home runs, home runs wise, and I think that you know that's that's gonna be the way they jump on him. If you know if they're gonna take this rubber game in the series and move into Kansas City here in the six game road swing that's coming up, that's gonna be the way to do it. Uh, mentioned, you mentioned Mike Wright. He's Slated to start game number three of this upcoming weekend series on Sunday. Let's take a look at those pitching matchups and let's see if anything kind of sticks out to you. On Friday, Giovanni Gallardo will face Chris Young. That's a, another veteran matchup, even more so than the one that we're going to see tonight. Uh, Vance Worley and Chris Medlin take the mound on Saturday. Probably a little bit more of an unheralded matchup there. And then Mike Wright gets another chance to impress you. He will be facing up uh, facing off, excuse me, against Jordano Ventura, the young flamethrower that's had a bit of a rough start for the Royals. Uh, do any of those matchups stand out to you as far as maybe more exciting than the others? Uh, you know, Ventura is the guy I, I like, frankly. Uh, no matter who the Orioles are sending out there, that's kind of the matchup that, that I like. Um, you know, I mean, maybe Ventura hasn't had quite the start uh, that, that he would like, but I, frankly, I, I never know quite what he's going to do. <laughs> you never know well, when he's going to kind of lose his mind a little bit, which always makes for excitement. Sorry, what were you getting? No, the strikeouts for him have been there more so than in the past, 17 strikeouts so far mm-hmm. in 16 innings. I think the most concerning thing has got to be the walks. Six in yep. his first start, six combined in the last two so while he's only allowed five earned runs in three starts and one home run, so a 2.81 ERA is gonna you know you're gonna look fondly upon that. But he's got a 1.50 WHIP and quite frankly just not limiting base runners the way you want to see a young guy with very good but very volatile stuff panning out. That's another chance too. Uh, you know it, it's a matchup for for a Ventura that's beneficial in that you know this is a team that is probably not going to make him work too hard walks-wise, but at the same time, too, you know, he's given up only one home run all season long. That, that could be an issue as well, and, and that's how they might want to attack him here on, on Sunday. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, now, I, I, I'm interested in Gallardo Young only because I've got kind of a, a tendency to like to watch the, the older guys work. Now, obviously, Gallardo is actually considerably younger than Young. 
it, it gets confusing saying younger and young and young and all in the same sentence. But uh, right, you got a guy, you got a guy that's been around forever, and so he, you know, he's, he's learned how to pitch as his stuff has declined. And whereas, you know, Young doesn't have quite as much experience, um, you know, in terms of recent history due to that thoracic uh, outlet syndrome and all that. But I think you're going to see two guys who are going to give you a competitive uh, outing game in and game out. And I think that, you know, it's not the young flamethrowers. It's not the guys that are going to rack up the strikeouts. But you're going to see a good, competitive, well-pitched game between the two guys. I I think so. I You know, I, I look at that matchup as the one – like if the Orioles are going to take that series, that's the one they they got to win. Um, Chris Young, you know, has has not had a good start to this season. He he likes to pitch up in the zone. He likes to uh, pitch to the fly ball, which you know to me that plays into the Orioles' wheelhouse, kind of. You know that we got a power hitting fly ball hitting team. Um. You know, I, I, he, he, he has given up three home runs this year, and I think that's that's the one the Orioles can jump on and take advantage of. Now, starting the middle game is Vance Worley for the Orioles. What are your expectations for him in terms of hanging on to a rotation spot this year? Through 10 and two-thirds innings, two starts, he has 11 strikeouts, which is decidedly not Vance Worley-like numbers. Usually he's more of a ground ball guy which, who gets a lot of looking – strikes not not really a swing and miss kind of guy do you have the expectation that he's going to hang in the rotation all year long or are you kind of watching out for someone like Kyle Loesch to come up and maybe steal that spot you know I I think uh I think you could be looking at Galsman coming up and take that well and that's true you know he he, I think that's actually a good point They've, they've been able to juggle the rotation a bit as uh you know five guys have taken starts but they've kind of juggled a little bit with the, of course, the rain out against or the the rain issues against the Twins and all that too. So I think yeah, I think Worley could be the first man out when it comes to Gaussman's return, which um, I believe is is coming sooner rather than later. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I'm not sure. I know Gaussman had a rehab start yesterday, and the other guy is uh, Matt. Matt, sorry, help me with the pronunciation. Matus. Mattis. Matus. Mattis. He's supposed to come back probably Saturday, which will create some shuffling as well in the in the bullpen on the bullpen side of things. But then I think I think Worley could be the next guy out uh, once Gossman returns. Um, so so I do, so he falls back sorry. to more of a long role in that case. I think so because I think so. Mattis had a had a nice outing uh, yesterday or two days ago where he went four innings four innings in a single leg game. It was interesting that he went four innings because um, they're not going to use him in that kind of role. Once he gets back, they're going to use him in a, you know, the left-handed lefty specialist kind of role. But mm-hmm. that will that will change the outlook of the bullpen because right now they have a lot of guys who can go long. Um, uh, and that you know Tyler Wilson, T.J. McFarland. Those guys can can all go along, but one of those guys is probably going to be out of the mix once Mattis comes back, which kind of leads me to the belief that Worley will end up being that long man, that swing man type guy once once Gaussner returns. Now, I kind of like that idea in, in the sense that if you've got a bullpen that can lock it down in the back end, you can have a couple long guys on the front end. You might have a situational ground ball guy that can get you a double play when you need it. 
I think that, that Worley is kind of an ideal swingman for that, that exact reason. You know, I don't believe he has any options left after spending a significant amount of time in the big leagues between a number of teams. But, you know, he can, he can really work in and out of different roles, and he's got a resilient enough arm that I think, you know, you're looking at a very valuable piece of a bullpen, even if it's not in the seventh, eighth, or ninth inning. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and they, they need that because the starters are only averaging about five innings right now. So, so you, well, you had mentioned Gaussman's start last night. I do have the numbers on that. He was pitching for AAA Norfolk. He did go five and two-thirds innings, ended up taking a loss, but gave up three earned runs, but had nine strikeouts, two walks, and uh, in general did a pretty good job through 91 pitches, which is uh, a considerable amount more than I think he'd been throwing. He'd, he'd made two previous starts, one with the, the Keys at high A and one uh, with the, Bo- the Bowie Bay Sox five days before that. So he's, he's working his way up. I think he's got to be getting close to a point now where if he threw 91 pitches uh, this last time out yesterday, you're probably looking at him rejoining the rotation within the next week or so. That's Yeah, that's that's got it. that's good. I mean, I don't partic- particularly like that he threw 91 pitches in five innings. That's kind of right. <laughs> makes me feel like I'm watching Ubaldo Jimenez all over again, um, who had, I think, 70 pitches through three innings last night. Um, but I do like the fact that he was able to throw 91 pitches, and I wouldn't you know, in a rehab start, I wouldn't worry too much about the, you know, how many runs he's given up because he's, you know, you don't know what he's working on. And, and the, the key is to get the work in. And there was, there was one error in the game too. So I don't know if that came while he was in, that can also ratchet up the pitch counts quickly, you know, playing in front of lesser defenses, you know, he's going to come up and he's going to pitch for a Baltimore team. That's got a really good defense and is going to, going to save him some of those extra pitches. I think it's going to be the potential for this team to turn things around uh, in the rotation standpoint by getting Gaussman back. With that said, you're still not looking at a miracle worker. He's not one guy that can totally revamp this whole thing. It's, it's going to be a team that's going to be, you know, much more heavily balanced towards the bullpen. Uh, the article I wrote for Baltimore Sports and Life the other day, they had a 5-1-4 starter ERA and a 2-0-3 mark in the relievers. Do you think that that's the kind of gap that they're going to be dealing with all season long, or is that going to get considerably more narrow as the season wears on? Well, you know, by the way, everyone should go read your article, Baltimore Sports and Life. Thank you. Let's throw that out there right now. Um, you know, I, I, my worry, my worry is that the gap will narrow in the wrong direction um, as far as the gap between the ERAs, because if, if these guys continue to average you know, four and two thirds or five and a third innings per start, the bullpen's simply going to get worn out over time. I mean, they're, they've got a lot of great arms down there and they look great now and they are, there's a lot of talent there. So that's understandable, but come August, come September, you know, you don't want to run these guys into the ground. So, you know, they do need to start getting at least six innings out of these guys six, seven innings, and, and you got to look at guys, Tillman, Gardo, Jimenez, those guys have got to work on being more efficient in my mind if, if this thing is going to continue going forward. They've got the offense. They've got the bullpen. Those guys are the key um, to me. So a key part of, of what pitchers do is, is the catchers that, that boost them or help them out, and the the Orioles obviously have a familiar name, and Matt Weider's doing, you know, basically basically starting catcher. But there, 
you know, um, when Chris was kind of directing us for how to go with this first episode, he wants to know, you know, what do we think about Matt Wieters and how frequently he should be catching? And, and then in terms of defensive value framing, you know, what does he bring or does he not bring that, that Caleb Joseph does? So I guess first and foremost with Wieters, you know, with, with all the injury issues that he's had over the last, you know, year or so, or a few years, quite frankly, do you believe they should be bringing him along more slowly or, or do you take into account that he's on a one-year deal and making a lot of money, so you try to extract maximum value out of him. Oh man, that's a great question. I, I guess, I guess, I mean, I don't want to ruin the guy, but he's clearly their best catcher. I mean, he, when it comes to framing, he's not. Caleb Joseph is better. The stats right. bear that out. Caleb Joseph is a better framer, but Caleb Joseph doesn't hit enough in my mind to make up for what Weeders brings to the table. So. To me, you know, I don't think I don't think you catch him 130 games plus. You know, that's that's a pretty solid number for a catcher, a durable catcher who who can play a lot. But 100 to 110 games, that's what two out of every three, something like yeah. that. What do you, what do you think? Does that seem reasonable? I mean, it also helps that you can DH him. Pedro Alvarez is off to a slow start. You yeah. know, there there are times where you can get his bat into the lineup when it's going good. Right now, you look at all the regulars, the guys that have been getting into the most games, seven of those nine guys have OPS plus numbers over 100. So, you know, he's one of those guys that you're going to want to find a spot for on days he's not in the lineup, especially now if Alvarez is going to struggle out of the gates a little bit. I think that makes it a little easier for you to to deal with that offensive downgrade when it comes to Caleb Joseph. It might also just boil down to pitchers that need that framing a little bit more. You know, your Vance Worley's. Uh, maybe your Giovanni Gallardo's if he starts to see his stuff decline even further, and I think it'll be a, it'll be a mix and match thing. I do trust Buck Showalter to have that in mind and to do a good job with mixing and matching. You know where maybe his stuff guys throw to Weeders a little better, maybe his command and control guys throw to Joseph, and you know you got a you know you can shield Pedro Alvarez from a tough lefty by DHing Weeders. It, it's going to be kind of a dance that I think Buck Showalter is going to have to show that he's good at. But there's no real reason for me to believe he wouldn't be, if you know what I mean. Right. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you. I've, I've got a couple. I've got a couple of stories I want to share about. I want to get your take on first on that, like what on, the, on all the things a catcher has to do. Where do you think pitch framing lies in the, on the level of importance? You know, it's so hard for me because I guess from the framing standpoint. I, I don't know enough about it as being like a settled science, so to speak, if, if framing, you know, in terms of depth, you know, like where you catch the ball, how much that matters and all that. Uh, I, think, I think it's probably less important than throwing. But you know what? You know, you're catching 100 and some odd pitches per game. You're only throwing a handful of times per game. That's where I have difficulty reconciling the two. But if yeah. you've got a big arm and, and you can really call a good game, you know, in terms of sequencing, you know, then uh-huh. can you get by with, with – not great framing, you know, how much does it depend on your pitching staff? You know, if you, if you have Clayton Kershaw and Zach Frankie like his Monty Grandall had last year, does, does framing really matter that much? So, I don't know. I think framing is probably somewhere in the middle for me, to be honest with you, without diving into it too deep. But yeah. I think some people overrate it and some people underrate it as we're, as we're learning more and more about it here, you know, as Sabermetrics tries to quantify 
everything that happens on the field. Uh, where, where do you stand on that? I'm pretty similar to you. I mean, I think it's, it's one of those things that's interesting and it's worth looking at, but it, it should be looked at carefully and not just assume like, oh, yes, Monty Grandel's a great framer, therefore he should start every game because there's just so much well, else that goes into it. Uh, and that's a great point you make about Kershaw and Greinke. If you've got great pitchers who can hit the black every time, your catcher's going to look like a better framer. Um, the other thing I think, the, the one thing I think about framing too, maybe the numbers aren't as settled. You know, if a guy is 15 uh, runs above average, that's one and a half wins, you know, based on maybe some old numbers. Maybe, maybe that's not as obvious and obviously true, but maybe the rankings list is probably more, you know, Kurt Suzuki's at the bottom of the list. I can't tell you for sure that he cost the Twins two games, for instance. Right. But I can tell you that he's a you know lesser framer than say a, a Matt Wieters and and way far behind a Caleb Joseph or a Rene Rivera at his peak with the Rays before he got to, before he got let go. You know maybe the rankings are where we need to be focusing instead of on the numbers until we're certain the numbers are you know much more firm. I think that's fair. Yeah, and there is there yeah. also is there also are some dangers with framing and and I've got two stories that kind of illustrate that. One is umpires are aware of it. Like umpires are mm-hmm. are aware of of that catchers are trying to do this to them, and I think it can have at times a negative effect. Uh, last year, AJ Ellis, who is not a particularly good framer according to the the numbers, uh, he got into it with Mike Winters. Mike Winters actually told he was kind of. Ellis was kind of complaining about a, a pitch that wasn't called, and Mike Winters told him, you need to present the ball better, which Ellis is a pretty cool-headed guy, but he totally went off. Like, how are you telling me how to catch? But right. I thought that was a really interesting thing. And this year, uh, Kenta Maeda, in his most recent start against the Giants, he was kind of he kind of scuffled in the first inning, and he kind of felt like the umpire was squeezing him. He was throwing to Yasmani Grandal. And Grandal had to take him in the into the clubhouse in between innings and show him video. And he said, look, you're not getting squeezed. I'm making these pitches look better than they are, which was fascinating to me. <laughs> he had to kind of calm down his own pitcher and say, look, I'm just framing really well. I but you're that. not getting squeezed, so relax. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's part of a catcher's job to, to be that kind of go-between. You know, there's – there's pitching coaches to calm a guy down too, but that on-field demeanor and all that, that, that goes understated, I think, for some catchers. You know, when you talked about things that are important for catchers to do or be able to do, the psychology of dealing with pitchers, you know, uh, the joke is that pitchers are kind of quirky to begin with. Uh, there's mm-hmm. there's a, a severe, a severe uh, serious psychology element to what a good catcher has to do to keep his pitchers in line. So I, uh, I, I definitely agree with that. I think that's, that's a big part of it. And that's a great point. I think what ultimately what it comes down to is the, the psychology, the calling the game, the, the keeping the pitchers uh, level. I think that's more important than any of the other duties a catcher handles. Okay, so when you look at Weeders accepting the qualifying offer, uh, which, which surprised me, but at the same time it didn't, do you view him as in a make-or-break season here, or do you view him as – this is kind of it for him with the Orioles and they're going to move on. I guess it is, what stands out for me is if he's healthy this year, 
they gave him the qualifying offer on the basis of a, a less than healthy year, but what he could do in the future. Do you think they'll do it again? Do you think they work out a long-term deal? Do you think they work out a medium-term deal? I'm just confused as to what the future is for a guy who's only playing in his age 30 season. Yeah, I boy, I have a hard time seeing a long-term deal come out of this. I mean, even if he does have a, a healthy season this year, that'll be the first since 2013. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I kind of – I don't – I, I see this as more of a a make or break season with the Orioles, frankly, than than as far as like his career. I mean, I think somebody if the Orioles decide that they want to spend their money elsewhere, a la Danny Machado, maybe um, <laughs> that and you like my transition attempt there. Um, exactly, exactly. I Perfect. do think somebody somebody will want Weeders regardless. So I. Yeah, my, I see it might more, be my local. More. Sorry, go ahead. Well, it might be the local twins here for me. I'm in Minneapolis, and they they're going to be needing a, a catcher long term. And if they don't get what they're looking for out of John Ryan Murphy this year, or, or they don't see enough out of him to believe that he can make that jump as a starter, you know, Weeders could be an option. Yeah, yeah. I mean, catchers are hard to so, come by, and he's a, he's a good one. They're, yeah, they're very hard to go. That's why the Twins traded Aaron Hicks for him is because they thought they had maybe seen something out of a guy who, in a small sample size, had played pretty well last year. And sometimes that's, you know, a notch in your belt for scouting to to find a guy who's playing part-time and turn him into a starter. Now, in that transition that you tried to make that I'm going to try to continue, it's, it's, <laughs> you can be the J.J. Hardy to my Jonathan Scope, but we're going to talk nice. about Manny Machado. And um, obviously, you know, up for free agency, not not immediately here soon, after the 2018 season, so there's a little bit of time to think about how they want to handle this, but at the same time, the teams the teams that are proactive in this respect are the ones that have the best results, I think, in terms of locking up their younger players. The, the baseline that everyone is going to want to go to is the Mike Trout deal, which I think is is something that Chris Stoner, our, uh, our fearless leader at Baltimore Sports and Life, says is this feels like a pipe dream because, you know, Trout's a better player, but to get him to accept a deal like that again, uh, a player of that caliber, that is, is, it's just not happening. And he thinks that a Giancarlo Stanton deal is more of a benchmark. Now, that deal was 10 years and I think $325 million. Do, do you really think it's going to take 10 years and $300 million to sign Manny Machado if they were to do it, let's say, at the end of this season? Uh uh, you know, <laughs> this stuff is so hard, so hard for That's me to I'm figure out. Yeah, I mean, there are so many different ways you could go with this, and and the thing that I think a lot of fans forget, and I'm I've been guilty of this myself over time, is forgetting that that you can't make the player do it. The player has to want to do something for it to happen. I mean, Mike Trout signed that deal because he wanted the short-term, the immediate security. Bryce Harper, with Scott Boris as his agent, I would guess is going to ride it out until he hits free agency. And then, you know, he's going to bet on himself that I'm the best hitter in baseball, and I still will be when I hit free agency in a couple of years and and make, make my bank then. So and, and I don't know about if you have a read on this, but I'm, I'm very unclear on where Machado stands on all this. Well, I, 
Chris mentioned too the idea of a, an opt out, which is very very popular for the players of Machado's caliber in the sense that you're protected against injury or in effect, but at the same time you can cash in when you're a couple years older, but hopefully still playing like you have been the last you know couple of seasons. He seems to be, uh, from a from a casual observer standpoint, the ideal candidate for that, where he could cash in again at the, uh, you know, let's say 26 years old, and they sign him to a three-year deal and he cashes in at that point. Uh, but there's also the, the issue that the Orioles are opposed to giving those out. Now, I don't know if that is, I don't know if that is a hard and fast rule, but that's the kind of rule I would break for a guy like Manny Machado. You just you don't get a Manny Machado every 10 years. You don't get a Manny Machado every 20 years. You've got a chance to have a guy who's better than Cal Ripley Jr. when all is said and done, uh, yeah. and, and there's probably a fairly good chance of that. I think, I think you take your rules, you rip them up, and you do whatever the guy wants to get signed. Where do you stand on that? I think given he's, what, 23, I think – I think that's age 23 uh, season. Yep. Age 23. Yeah. I would, I would do that as well. And I would start, how about this? Here's an idea for you. Start with, you know, he's making 5 million this year. He probably, if he goes to arbitration, I don't know, 10 to 12 next year. And then 18 to 20 the year after that. Right. Does that sound right? How about going, I'm I'm just getting, you know, speculating. How about going and offering a three-year, $60 million? You know, buy out one-year free agency, three-year, $60 million extension. He's going to make more than he would, you know, twice, about twice what he would make next year. And uh, and then just start with that. So there's your, your essentially your opt-out is after your first year of free agency. Um, and, then, and then, you know, he's also made comments he made comments in spring training about how he was so glad that the Orioles spent money in the offseason to keep his teammates around, Chris Davis, Darren O'Day, et cetera. You can kind of you almost use that statement against him in your negotiations. Like, look, let us do this now, sign you to a three-year extension, uh, and then we could, you know, we could build a, build, continue to build this team around you and see what he thinks about that. And then you're still coming out as a, as a free agent at age 26, 27. And that's, that's basically building a deal that is an opt-out without the actual back end. Now, I don't know if that does enough for Machado uh, up front to make up for that back end, but it's something he'd probably have to think long and hard about with how much you're giving him on the front side as a boost. You, you hope as a measure of goodwill that would keep him engaged to the point where within three seasons or within a number of years before you have to worry about him getting crazy again, you could put together another contract. But at the same time, too, I think, you know, it's, it, it, it's a deal where you, you might be giving enough on the front end to, to lock down the back end. And, you know, I think maybe it could work. I, I think you, you might be onto something here. It might. I mean, again, I don't know what's going on in his head and what he truly values. But I think it's right. worth at least floating the idea. Uh, another what, thing – sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. I, I, I was going on to something else. Well, I just want to make one more quick point that it might he might want to keep an eye on what Nolan Arenado and the Rockies are doing too because similar players 
are in a, they're both great defensive players. They're both great bats. Machado's a little bit overall, probably a, bit, a better player than Arenado, but not that significantly. I mean, he plays for the Rockies, so people might not know it, but Arenado is going to be a great player. Um, he's, he's on the same time frame as uh, Machado is. So mm-hmm. he could, in a way, Arenado could help. If he happens to sign early with the Rockies, he could potentially set a, a bar for Machado moving forward as well. Yeah, I agree with that. Let's do this. Let's hit the sounder for our bumper. We'll come back and we'll chat a little bit more about the rest of the division. We'll maybe chat a little bit about Peter Gammons, who everybody loves. But let's do this. Let's stick with us for just a, a 30 second pause here and we'll be right back on the warehouse. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Baltimore Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations on the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. You know, Bob, one thing I was thinking about, did we ever find out who was bidding against the Orioles for Chris Davis this offseason? <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> I, 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 that did you, was, I think did you that give me that job? <laughs> if I did, I forgot to, to file the necessary paperwork, but I'll say this much. I just, that's the one mystery of the off season for me that I just, I, I never really understood who the mystery, it felt like it was Orioles and then hashtag mystery team. And, you know, we just never got a really great grasp on who that, that mystery team was. And you know what? Props to, Props to Davis, props to his agency. They extracted a ton of money out of the Orioles. Yeah, absolutely. And that is uh, the Scott Morris Corporation. And it seems, he's, <laughs> he's, he always, he's always the guy that has the mystery team, right? Exactly. Well, he is the mystery team. Okay, so <laughs> the, the, the other infielder that we wanted to talk about here before we move on to maybe some more uh, widespread macro type of topics is Jonathan Scope. In the scope of Jonathan Scope, what do you think of him as far as what he looks like compared to his peers at second base in the American League? You know, I I just please let me call him Shoop. I want to call him Shoop. It's like I call him Matthews. You can if you want. Matthews. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, Jonathan Scope. Yeah. I mean, 24 years old. Uh, a lot of great upside. I believe the was it the American League East general managers picked him in to be a breakout player this year. Um, yeah, I'm not sure that I'm that sold on on him uh, as being a breakout type guy. I mean, I, you look at American League second baseman. You know, I look at Jose Altuve and Robinson Cano as the cream of the crop there. Then I look at guys like Kinsler and Kipnis, and I, I think. You know, maybe you could see Scope get up into the next level below those guys. Right now, looking at the numbers, I see a guy who needs to work on his walk rate. Well, <laughs> uh, he's got like a career walk rate below 3%. He needs to get a better eye for the strike zone. And I also find it curious that he seems to be a, either a singles or homer guy. Did you notice that? He like he doesn't hit that many doubles. He has 
<laughs> Last I looked, he had 39 career doubles and 35 career home runs, which was puzzling to me. It is funny how some guys have the – I don't know if you'd call it a skill set or a tendency, but it is funny how some guys just gravitate towards certain certain outcomes. And he sure seems to be that kind of guy. Uh, you know, you see a lot of pop from him. I think defensively, you know, I was talking to Chris a couple weeks ago on my podcast, Midwest Swing, and said he has a really nice arm. Um, you know, he's not totally sold on him defensively at second base yet, but but at the same time, too, you know, maybe maybe you move him to third eventually if Machado moves to short and J.J. Hardy goes uh, goes elsewhere or when Hardy's, you know, Hardy's Orioles career is up. Uh, I, I see a guy that's got a lot of potential, but, yeah, the loss rate is, is obviously very concerning. But, you know, you, you see a guy that he's got the physical tools. So, Here's my question to you. If you could pick between these two American League East second basemen, which one are you taking? Jonathan Scope or Starlin Castro? <laughs> that's, that's a great question. I, you know, <laughs> Castro's off to a great start with the Yankees, but, but man, small sample size, right? Right. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I go with probably what I know in that case. I go with Scope in that case. Um, and so for me, it's, it's probably Castro just because I like the track record. And I, you uh-huh. know, I, I know walks, I know walks aren't necessary, but they really are nice, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, the money ball didn't become a big thing for nothing, right? I mean, right. I mean, the the whole key to me is the the, the batter's job, and I and this is a total sidetrack note, but. Joey Votto seems to be a lightning rod for this. You're an RBI guy, so if it's near the strike zone, you need to swing the bat and drive in runs. Right. To me, the whole object of a batter at its very most basic level is to not make an out. So whether you're getting yep. a hit, whether you're getting a walk, whether you're sticking your elbow out there and taking it off the, the guard, you're getting on base. And that's to me, is the most important thing for a batter. So walks are good. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Well, so switching gears, there is a, a Peter Gammons piece that came out on Gammons Daily. If you're not reading Gammons Daily, you're missing out on some fun stuff. Uh, some good writers on his team, and also just Peter Gammons himself, the the guy who I, I know I grew up watching on Baseball Tonight and all kinds of different ESPN programming. So he penned an article kind of invoking uh, a number of seasons ago, the night when the Orioles spoiled the playoff hopes of the the Red Sox, and then uh, Evan Longoria hit a home run, and you know that kind of whole thing where uh, where the Orioles played the spoiler. They only won 69 games that year, but they jumped basically into relevance uh, the next season and have been basically relevant since. But anyway, he kind of invokes those images and then uh, summarizes that the Orioles have the most wins in the division since that night. Um, you know, what what was your takeaway from this Peter Gammons piece? He, he seems to really lay out the case for a team that has a ton of power but has enough other things going right that uh, that even though everyone's sleeping on them as far as the division contender, they should be right there at the end. Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting article. I had I had no idea that they had the most wins in the AL East since the end of the end of 2011. That was I, don't, that I was would really, have lost that bar bet. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, but you know given given that information and given how they've started this year, to me, it made a lot of sense. And to me, to me, it basically came down to three things. One, they're offense. They've got an offense. They're going to crush the ball top to bottom pretty much. 
yep. to their bullpen is is great. And as we saw with Kansas City Royals that year, last year, that's kind of the way things are going. You know, get six six innings out of your starter, and then hand it over to a bunch of guys who who get who just get outs with ease. And then the third thing he pointed out was kind of the Buck Showalter culture, the leadership of Buck Showalter, the culture he's instilled in that clubhouse. And he mentioned, I believe he mentioned three guys in particular. At least that, that's what I wrote down in my notes. And one was Adam Jones, who Buck Showalter mentioned, who, who's been hurt this year. And Buck Showalter mentioned that he went to him and asked him, can you give me an inning of defense late in the game? And he said, yeah, absolutely. Didn't even blink an eye. Just like, yep, put me out there. I'll mm-hmm. do it. Yeah, I'm hurting. So what? Uh, Matt Wieters was another one he mentioned who will help anybody with anything. And uh, Trumbo, which, which, you know, in addition to carrying the cover off the ball this year, uh, is get, he gave a lot of credit for his, his leadership and his willingness to share knowledge uh, in the clubhouse things that Trumbo learned. Trumbo credited uh, Paul Goldschmidt when he was in Arizona and Albert Kuholz when he was with the Angels that sort of teaching him to do the same thing, and he's now passing it on to his Orioles teammates. Yeah, that's great to see. And I, again, I would have lost, like I said, that best that the Orioles had the most wins in the last five years. I, when I look at this team, I see a poor man's Royals from a year ago, and that is uh, built on bullpen and then you know, one tool offensively that makes you better than everybody else. In the in the Royals' case, it was contact. In the Orioles' case, it's probably power. But I, I yeah. do kind of see that framework of, of a shaky rotation and all that. And I think I think Peter nails home some pretty good points that I've been trying to make over the course of the spring. And, and honestly, I think this is a team that could be in the thick of it uh, until the end of the season. I think so. And I think <laughs> – you make me laugh what you just said there. I think Peter Gavin nails down a lot of points that the rest of us try to make. That's that's just why he's Peter Gavin. Um, he's yeah, well, that's, that's um, true. But no, yeah, I, I see. I, th- I I I agree with what you're saying. This team, there's no reason to to think that this team can't continue to remain in contention. I mean, with to me personally, the big caveat is that they they need to get more out of their starting rotation, not a ton more. But they need to get right. into the start getting into the sixth and seventh innings, at least on occasion. Now, I hadn't I hadn't really thought about the idea before it came out of my mouth. That's a, that's a frequent thing if you ask my wife. To be honest with you, uh, <laughs> but uh, as far as having a bullpen that's that's kind of got a split between long guys that can help you if your pitch your starters don't go well, and a bullpen that has you know high-end arms at the back end, that, that to me strikes me as unique, and that's the one thing where I think they can, you know, for the rest of the season, sustain slower starts as if they have enough long guys that can give you probably 85, 95 innings this season. Again, that's, that's not ordinary. A lot of teams don't squeeze 95 or 100 innings out of a reliever, but, but maybe that's the blueprint here, too, is to have a guy like Vance Worley at the front of that bullpen once everyone's healthy that can do that, or, uh, you know, Mike Wright, if he gets bounced from the rotation once everyone's healthy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, McFarland, I think, has the ability to eat a lot of innings. Wilson right. has a lot of ability to eat a lot of innings. Um, and uh, Worley, as you mentioned, once he gets down there. I think, I, I do think that might shift a little bit 
once uh, Gaussman and Mattis return, because uh, like I said earlier, Mattis is, uh, according to Showalter, is not going to be used as a as a guy who will go multiple innings. So that will change the look of the bullpen a little bit. But um, but then again, if you can counter that by, you know, getting a Gaussman in there in the rotation who can help eat some more innings that way, then maybe that'll counterbalance that. I agree with that. Yeah, that's not good. Um, the one thing I wanted to get you before we shove off for the day, we got about six minutes left here, is, you know, when you look at the landscape of the American League East, and, and of course, we're only talking, you know, 13, 14 games for a lot of these teams, 16 in the case of the the Blue Jays, but you're, you're not talking about huge sample size. You're talking about 10% of the season. Are, are you looking at the standings with any sort of idea that you have any way it's going to play out, or is this just kind of jostling for position right now? Yeah, I, I kind of look more – I mean, the, the – there's only a four game spread from top to bottom right now. So like I look more at trends and what I see, like things that concern me in general. And that's kind of how I, I look at these teams. Like, and I don't see anybody, any team that doesn't have a flaw in this division. You know, I think the Blue Jays. That's an AL thing. That's an AL thing, quite frankly. No. Yeah, you're right. You're right. The National League is much more, uh, a much bigger split, I think, between the top and the bottom because you've got a few teams there like Atlanta and Milwaukee that aren't trying to really do anything. <laughs> they're trying, they're trying to just, they're not trying to win this season. Um, I think the AL, I agree with you, is much more complex. Um, but I, like I look at things and I, like I, the Blue Jays again, I would probably put up there is my favorite, but, but they've got questions around their rotation, I think. I mean, even if Aaron Sanchez, you know, continues to pitch the way he's pitched so far this year, they might have to, you know, they've talked about an inning limit on him. They might have to monitor that as they go. The Red Sox rotation, frankly, doesn't look that much better than last year to me. You, you know, aside from David Price, the other guys still pretty much are struggling so far. Uh, the Yankees, same story to me as as always. They're old. I mean, they have they have I think uh, two guys under the age of 32 in their regular lineup: Gregorius and Castro. Everybody Jeez. else is 30, 32 or over. And one of the 32 year olds is Jacoby Ellsbury, who who you know we know about his struggles to stay healthy. And the Rays are almost the opposite problem. They're they're young. They're young. Evan Longoria is their long, their oldest regular, and he's 30. Which, by the way, that blew me away that Evan Longoria is 30. Right. <laughs> He'll always be like forever. 26 to me, I think. But Yeah, I mean, but, he's simultaneously been young but around forever for me. Like, it, you know, it's, exactly. it's just funny how you – I, I kind of find, fun, like, fun in the minutia of the ages of players. Like, today I found out that – Rick Purcello, for instance, is younger than Steven Strasburg and Shane Green. I mean, that just blows your mind. Guys that you think are, are way younger in terms of service time. But Rick Purcello's been around forever. He pitched a, a playoff or a, a game 163 against the Twins in 2009 as like a 21-year-old. He's been wow. around forever. Wow. Yeah. Um, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned some question marks with the, the Jays' rotation. 
I like Stroman. Dickey and Estrada, I could kind of go back and forth on. And then Jay Hop, you know, it's just going to depend on how much he can bring back from the National League and his time with Ray Searidge. I think it was just 10 or 11 starts. But, you know, we'll see what happens there. I, I really like Sanchez, too, if he can, you know, come out, command the strike zone. But that's going to be the issue with him for, for a very long time. And so I think, I think they've got some interesting things going on. But, you know, every team's got that flaw, like you kind of laid out there. And, and that's why... You know, I still feel like you could pick names out of a hat for this division, and it would be unclear exactly who you would be favoring to win the division, and you'd have just as good odds, though, like I said, drawing names out of a hat and, and putting them down and saying, okay, this is where they're going to finish, and, and that, would be, that would be just as likely to be, to be right. Yeah, absolutely. So, now, so, yeah, go ahead. Well, we're coming up on a minute and a half here left in the show, Bob. Uh, we we kind of had to, to abbreviate the introductions because of, of the uh, the uh, technical difficulties that we were dealing with at the beginning of the show. Where can people find you on Twitter? Where can they find your work? And uh, where all have you been in the last couple of years as you've been kind of developing your skill set? Uh, I'm at B-Harts, B-H-A-R-K-S on Twitter. So follow me there. Uh, if, if you can handle a lot of Dodger stuff, I'm in here. I'm out here in Los Angeles, actually. Or working nice. for Sportsnet LA, the Dodgers Network, uh, and you can also find me if there are any NFL fans out there on the FanRake Sports Network on today's big skid writing NFL stuff. So I'm kind of all over the place. How about you? So that's about the same. I'm actually on the the FanRake Network for today's knuckleball. I also do a daily column with the Sports Post on the pitching matchups for the day. I work with FanGraphs on the fantasy side of things, and. So on Fridays, you will see my upcoming two-start starters. It's a fantasy strategy where uh, fans can, can kind of exploit matchups that way. And then uh, my, my main job is doing uh, stuff for Cold Omaha. I cover the Twins as a beat reporter. So lots of fun stuff going on, Bob. I want to say thank you for joining us for this first episode, and uh, we'll, we'll catch everybody next week. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, Brandon. All right, that's been the first episode of The Warehouse for Baltimore Sports and Life. Have a great day. That isn't just the sound of the all-new 2016 Mercedes-Benz GLC being put through its paces. It's the sound of innovation. The innovation behind one of the most advanced SUVs on the road today. With multiple driving modes, a suite of intelligent drive systems, and a technology-filled cabin that sets new standards in modern luxury. This is what innovation sounds like. Now, discover what it feels like in a 2016 Mercedes-Benz GLC. Some equipment described as optional.